Welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Zach Bryant and Chris Haskell. How are you doing today, guys? Hey. I'm doing all right. I think a lot oh, better than you. Good. How are you feeling? Uh, I, I am, in Ireland, I am what we would say shook. I'm very shook. Um yeah, so for the listeners, I'm quite hungover. Um, it was a bit of a celebration night out last night for me and, and my friends. So uh, I was not in a good way this morning. Um, I slowly revived throughout the day. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this together, I think. We'll, we'll be okay. Uh, but congratulations are in order, right? For sure, yeah. So yeah, we were celebrating because uh, me and my partner uh, got engaged uh, last weekend. So yay! Yeah, all good. Yeah, all good, all good. So yeah, we me and me, my friends, my my mates, kind of took me out on like a pre pre bachelor's party, (laughs) like well before any kind of bachelor parties anyway planned. That my my the guys I went to school that decided that they were going to take me out on the town. And I drank a lot of alcohol and now I'm paying the price. So, uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it together. As I said, uh, any, any news on your guys's front before we, we get cracking? Um, well, I am now have a much steadier job. Hopefully that'll start soon. Hey, yeah. That's good news. That's great news. Do you, do you not know the start date yet? Well, the, the, so because it's a state job, uh, we are required to get our pay approved by the state capital. So they had to send off how much they're interested in paying me and make sure Richmond will sign off on it, essentially. So if they sign off on it by Monday, I'll start December 10th. If they don't, I'll have to start on the 25th because in the state of Virginia, you can only start on either the 10th or the 25th. Oh, interesting. And without disclosing any details, is it more or equal to what you're making now? It's more. It's by far more. Um, but I also get I'm more. It's sad. I, I, saw, I said I told uh, somebody the other day, I was like, you know, you know, you got old when you're just excited to have insurance. Adam doesn't understand <laughs> that because, you know, he's not in America. <laughs> the excitement to have insurance is great. Hey, pay raise with health insurance. Way to go, man. You got it. <laughs> You're in. That's that's fantastic. Uh, no, I don't really have any big news on the personal front. I'm just excited for um, the uh, the Black Friday sale from Vinegar Syndrome. Oh, um, I'm. I think I'm going to become a subscriber for a second year. They've got me on the hook. Um, I think we're they're in this interesting place as a company right now, where they're starting to go bigger with their titles and more famous with their titles, and more well known, I should say, with their titles. So I imagine that trend is going to continue. So they've got me on the hook for another year. Well, I'm, yeah, well, since we've already talked about it, I'm excited for that, for you to become a subscriber. Yeah, if that happens, I, I, I have a, uh, there, there's a, um, I don't want to jinx it too much, but there's a, there's a, let's call it a 20% chance that my work will take me to the UK next year. Uh, and Zach has been kind enough to offer his address for the vinegar syndrome subscription. If that move happens, <laughs> it's all very selfless on my part. I assure you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I don't have to cancel the subscription mid year or something like that. I can keep getting them and uh, ship them to Zach's house and then just get them whenever we move back stateside. So thank you for that. Oh, no problem. It's uh, I'll, I'll watch your movies. I'll, I'll make sure they all work. 
That's perfect. Chris Kesson back said, why is there no shrink wrap on these? Oh, <laughs> they, they must have stopped shipping them with, with the shrink wrap. I don't know what happened. Yeah, they're just trying to save a couple cents here, you know? <laughs> Um, no, that's oh. all good. I'm excited to talk about these two movies and uh, yeah. the maybe surprising theme that connects them. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll see what that is. I, I'm not sure myself. Um, well, well, we'll crack in with the first film. So this should have been our second film, but I, we, we gave Zach a stay of execution for having to pronounce a foreign name this week. So uh, <laughs> we're going to take it. So uh, the first one we're talking about is a Stone Cold Bonafide classic you know it's just one of those films where anyone who's into film should see it at least once it is a jean vigo's revolutionary 1934 film la talante uh for for those who may be uninitiated with the film just to give you a brief rundown from imdb uh, the plot is a newly married couple juliette and a ship captain jean struggle through marriages sorry struggle through marriage as they travel on the la talante along the ca- along with the captain's first mate Le Pierre Jules and the Cabin Boy. Um, that's maybe a bit overblown. It's essentially, you know, the sort of strife that goes along with a with, with a new marriage from people who maybe don't know each other as well as they sort of think they do. And, you know, the struggles that come along with that. Um, I, I've seen this film before. This is my second time seeing it. I saw it nearly, nearly, actually, it may have been a year ago, today when we were recording it was very much practically a year ago since i saw it um and i was very excited to watch it again because it's an incredible film jean vigo was extremely talented it was a great loss to the world that that he died a few months after this film was released quite sadly at the age of maybe 27 or 28 so extremely young um so i i already knew that i love this film going into it which is always nice uh rather than you know something like fucking images getting picked um <laughs> but what, what do you guys think he wants to jump in first uh with, with la Talante. uh i'm gonna be my my opinion has grown uh quite positive since i saw it and i was very neutral when i first saw it um so i'm happy to talk about that journey but i don't know zach do you want to go first I can. I guess I should put a little disclaimer that anyone listening should not listen to anything I'm going to say. Um, this is very much <laughs> out of my wheelhouse. Um, it is definitely one of those ones, as Adam mentioned, it's essential to watch, if you, especially if you want to you know, go through history of cinema and stuff like that. It just didn't do much for me. Like, it, and, you know, it, it, a lot of it could just be down to it's not my normal thing. It's, so I'm more interested to hear a lot of what you guys talk about, because a lot of times I gain more appreciation hearing you guys discuss it more than me talk about it. So I'll kind of think the the issues I really had for me were I didn't really like the relationship. I didn't think it was very, I don't want to say not interesting, but I just didn't care. Like, and I feel like that's essential, like for this movie to work is you have to be invested in that. And I just never could be, I will say it's beautifully shot. I love the underwater sequence. Uh, I think that cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and I think there was some moments of humor I really liked. Um, I like the cats. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's it. I'm more interested in you guys at this point to see, uh, since I know Chris was a little bit more neutral and he gained some appreciation for it. I'm hoping I'll have the same thing will happen for me, but that's kind of my general thoughts. So roughly 13,000 individual critics and writers uh, there have a weighted average of this as the 17th best film of all time. 
And I saw that number before I watched it. And I wish I wouldn't have done that because there's just something that happens, I think, mentally when you go into a film expecting this to be the 17th best film of all time. Like, I think it's hard to watch it with that kind of neutrality, right? Or just to kind of come in with a blank canvas. And the story is so simple. And I think the characters are so unlikable, except for John, uh, John, uh, uh, Jules, anyways. Jules, yeah. Um, that I just, I was confused when I stopped watching it. I was like, I was like, okay, like, so are we supposed to hate John? Like, are we supposed to re reward like selfish, his selfishness? Like I was just confused by it. Um, and then as I read other people's uh, takes on this film, and as I found out that is, this is Jim Jarmusch's favorite film. So there's a little connection there. Um, and I, I started to read why people liked it. I kind of understood that basically, I think it stands out for people because it's sort of like, it's this entry point to surrealism, right? So it's very digestible. It's not that abstract. It's not hard to follow. Um, but John Vigo like very subtly plays with reality a little bit in ways that I think are very creative. Um, we can get into them here in a second. Like the, just Jules's room in general and all these artifacts from all over the world have a very kind of playful, slightly larger than reality feel to them. Uh, obviously the underwater scene, like you mentioned, Zach, the scene where they're kind of at remotely making love with each other, or at least feeling each other's kind of, that's like spiritual connection of, of that sexual connection at a distance. There's, uh, there's a scene even early, early on where I think the ship is taking off and she's like in a white dress and it's almost like, you know, glowing, like so bright. So anyways, there's these moments in the film that I think were subtle. I think they weren't being done in 1934. I think there, a lot of them are still not being done today. So my appreciation has grown of this from the, from a technical standpoint and from a sort of the creativity that Vigo had in the way that this story was told. Um, and like you, Zach, I'm hoping Adam can explain a little bit more context around this. Because um, there's no way I would put this as the 17th best film of all time, but I am starting to appreciate it more the more and more I hear about it. So I, I find it super interesting that you um, you, you called it like a, a surrealist or a surrealism adjacent film. For me, I actually find it very very much like a realist or or poetic realism as it became sort of known in the next ten years. You know, in French Ooh. cinema, especially with with uh, Jean Renoir. I find it very much like a poetic realist film, uh, like any early sort of example of it, um, because there was no other film at this time for at least a couple more decades that would have a relationship like this. To, you know, showing a marriage in this kind of strife or two people so incompatible, but, you know, and for me, it's, that's, that's what makes it very realistic because, if you look at Hollywood and the films, you know, that were coming out there, like sort of in a similar genre, mm -hmm. it's all very, very stable. You know, the strife is normally, you know, caused by something, you know, like real conflict rather than sort of ideas with this film. So like uh, Dita Parlow's character, you know, longs for this big city that she thinks she's going to be moving to. She longs for adventure. She wants to leave the small town that, that we see at the very start of the film. 
And then Jean, the captain, we we presume it's 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 inferred that he has promised her this with the marriage. So when it turns out to be maybe not a lie, but sort of a bending of the truth, because technically they do pass through these cities, but they don't really do anything when they're there. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of completely changes, you know, her sort of perspective on everything. And that's what sort of sets everything up then for, for the conflict to appear. So I, I, I've kind of went a long way around in saying that I think the, um, I think the relationshipy stuff in this film is actually very realistic. And, and I mentioned it to you, Chris, on Reddit when we were doing these sort of comments afterwards. You you asked me, you know, sort of you were trying to obviously understand the whole idea of Jean. Are we supposed to like this character? Are we supposed to like the fact that they got back together in the end? And uh, and I had said that it, I find it incredibly interesting looking at it in the modern context. Because when I when I first saw the film, you know, I kind of passed this off as like, oh, you know, it's just a sign of the times, you know, I'm not going to judge it too harshly because of the gender politics at play were just different, you know, nearly 100 years ago than they are now. But now yeah. uh, the second time around, I find it incredibly interesting because Jean is essentially a manipulator. You know, he he doesn't just manipulate uh, Juliet, he, he manipulates the audience because the fact that you are even thinking, oh, should we be happy, you know, that they got, you know, that they sort of are, are going to be together or should we feel bad for him? The fact that you're even thinking that means that he is he's getting his way. So I, I in a way, he's like a subtle villain in the film, um, just the way he manipulates Juliet by sort of making her think she's going to have this big city fun life. And the one night they do go out together, you know, he goes into a jealous rage Right. Oh, um, over. Admittedly, the guy was it was a creep, and she was clearly uncomfortable as well. It's not like she was out, sort of, you know, shaking her bits around town or anything like that. And, you know, <laughs> the guy that she was dancing with that that sent John into this rage was a creep. Um, but yeah, he's a he's a manipulator, and I I think and I think that Jean Vigo did a great job of subtly portraying that to the audience as well, because. Like I think you are supposed to feel bad for him when they're when they're not together, and you're supposed to feel happy for them when they get back together, despite being deeply flawed. And you know they shouldn't be together in any way. I, I, I'm trying really hard to follow the logic there, but can I, I? I there's just something I'm missing. So, okay, the guy who played the peddler, his name was Gilles Margaritis, right? Okay. Um, I, I don't. I I can't confirm nor deny, so I'll I'll, I'll believe you. Uh, or at least according to IMDb. <laughs> so uh, he was he was this very enigma- enigmatic person, right? He's a very entertaining guy, uh, total shyster, but he had a great kind of bubbly, like very fun personality, right? And he probably represented, his character kind of represented like what the city had to offer. Like he kind of matched Juliet's vision of like the city, right? Um, and And she kind of fell for him in that, Maybe it was, she was part of it because she was very naive coming from, I think, a smaller town into the big city. And, you know, that whole like cliche about falling for the first person you kind of meet or whatever that, you know, represents what the city has. Um, He's also very persistent, probably to the point of where it's not okay. (laughs) Uh, um, So it's this interesting thing where like she's unhappy on the boat with her husband, Jean, because he's very jealous. 
He doesn't take her off. He doesn't show her a good time. He doesn't give her like the life that he kind of promised her. And then there's this other guy who comes in the picture who obviously is going to be the exact same. Like he's not, even if she were to run off with this guy, he would not give her the life that she thinks she's going to have with him. Right. In her mind. So she's kind of in this bad spot. And the only person who's a safe space for her is Jules. Um, who's, I mean, obviously there would never be any romantic thing there. I don't think that was the intent at all, but like, they're just, he's just an interesting guy. Right. And he like listens to her and he like shows her the world and he like kind of helps her dream big. So her character just kind of is stuck a little bit. Like, I guess I'm having a hard time seeing how this movie, like, like she, 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 it just kind of ends with her being stuck of like, not really being able to win or, you know, it's kind of like the way that people talk about La Strada being this amazing film. And like, it, it's sad. But this is my point about it being, you know, poetic realism. Okay. You know, there is, not everyone gets a happy ending. Some people are just stuck oh, in their okay. situation and that it is what it is, you know, that's, 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 that's oh. what, that was the point I was making. You know, there was no, like it's there's kind of like a faux happy ending but you know we know because of what we've seen over the last 90 minutes we know this probably is going to be a cycle and she she probably won't right. escape that and right. but that's that's life sometimes some people don't escape these things oh interesting okay that's see this i honestly this is there's a reason why people talk about this film because there's so many dimensions to it and how on different ways it is a very simple film but there's so many subtle dimensions and sort of readings into it. And like you brought up this idea that, you know, maybe she was um, enticed by the peddler character and, you know, the, he represents the city and stuff. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was, I thought the same thing when I first watched it. And this is the value of rewatches because I realized when I was rewatching it, you know, during that scene, the dance hall, she was incredibly uncomfortable. She was not, I don't think she was falling for this fella. He was holding her extremely tight. She was always looking around for Jean. I don't think she was happy in that situation. I don't think she was entranced by it. In fact, you mentioned Jules. When, when I think of a character who represents what Juliet wants, I think of Jules because he's been all over the world. He has had the freedom. He has lived a full life. Yeah. So that's what she wants. And you, you mentioned that as well. You mentioned that obviously he sort of you know, represents that because of all the things in his in his room and all the different artifacts from around. And what happens then when when she gets a taste of what she could have? What happens in very what happens in the scene after that? Jean comes in and breaks it all to pieces. Yeah, right. He takes all the stuff, all the stuff from around the world, and starts smashing it up. He's smashing her dreams. Like you're watching it happen. Yeah. It's, it's subtle because you just think this guy's just a jealous prick. He's just throwing his toys out of the pram, as we'd say in Ireland. don't know if that's a, yeah. a thing in America. He's throwing that's his toys funny. out of the pram. Um, but yeah, he, he, symbolically, he is, he is smashing her dreams because this is what she dreams of. She wants to travel. She wants to see the world. And Jean has come in and destroyed that chance. Uh yeah does I that mean, track I, does that am I, like if i'm talking out of my ass please tell me <laughs> well even if you are it makes sense i i think you're right i just don't like it 
I get it. But, I get you know, I get it. Like that it's it's like we, No, I don't watch, like it in the sense that I appreciate that it is you you don't see that representation of like that side of reality of romance that often, right? Especially in this era. Romance. Especially in this yeah. era. That's the thing what yeah. I think throws you because when you watch a 30s or 40s film that focuses on a marriage, you're not expecting to see these things. And this is why the film is so revolutionary. Yeah, I don't have, I mean, I think you've convinced me. I mean, this is what, and, you know, all kind of, you know, bad things about Harvey Weinstein aside, this is what Miramax was doing in the 90s and early 2000s and mid 2000s, right? Miramax was famous for putting out these like relatively simple love stories that did not have the happy ending. Right, they had very complex relationships, and so there, he, in that sense, he was sixty years. Vigo was sixty years ahead of his time, right? Absolutely, he was. He was. Abs- he was. He was a genius. Huh. I have to let that sink in a little bit. I, honestly, I think I have to- honestly, this is a film. I, I promise you that if you watch it again and again. It will just it will just really sink in how incredible this movie is because I really liked it when I first watched it. I thought it was I thought it was amazing, um, but a whole new level of of understanding and, and appreciation for the film the second time because I was able to see those little things that I didn't really quite catch the first time. So in a way, to sort of circle back to your original point, in a way, it is kind of like watching a surreal film, like a Mulholland Drive or something like that, where if you if you watch it a few times, you'll pick up another subtleties that you may not have caught before. It's a very, uh, it's a very disarming film, because, like I said, it's a very simple story, um, but it has a lot of, it has a lot of um, thematic weight to it, a lot of subtle, surreally, you know, nice yeah. sort of symbolic moments throughout. I like the word disarming. I think that's a very good summary of kind of how I felt watching it, because because it's subtle, it sort of just makes you uncomfortable watching the romance play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, like honestly, it's all, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, maybe this is what you're going to say as well, but a lot of movies, if you're meant to see a bad relationship, they're going to continue to beat you over the head with how bad this relationship is, right? Mm-hmm. And here it's like, he almost like, it's one of those, he's maybe one of these artists or directors that gives the audience credit. Like he doesn't have to like over exposition everything. He just kind of like lets the story play out and lets you kind of react to it. Yeah, and like to to throw a reference back all the way to episode one of the podcast, it acts very much like uh, La Bonheur, the um, okay, the, the the Agnes Varda film again about a, a relationship, but you know what what is shown versus what's actually happening is is very sort of subtle and 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 changes how you would view the the characters and the relationship in the film. Um, yeah, La, La Atalante. It's an incredible film. It's a very, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's it honestly, it is, a, it's a masterpiece. I'm curious if either one of you guys, and I, I bring this up because I actually watched it recently, and a lot of the things you're bringing up, Adam, it sort of reminds me of. So I feel like I can find appreciation in that. Um, PTA's Phantom Thread that came out a few years ago. No, it's been on my watch list for a while because. <laughs> Uh, I've listened like I love the soundtrack if that means anything to you yeah, the soundtrack's soundtrack, it's pretty good Johnny Greenwood so it's always great yeah. yeah um what about you Chris have you seen it I I need to catch up on PTA I'm two or three behind um so it, it it deals with a very similar idea and I think this might be why like why they're 
because I, I, I like uh, Phantom Thread a lot. I, I, it's against usually a lot of what I watch, but I really enjoy that one. And specifically what I enjoy about it, just I'm not going to go into spoilers, but generally what the movie is kind of exploring is this relationship where the power dynamic changes pretty constantly. They're both so codependent and attempting to be like independent from one another and they get tired of each other. And then the, you know, they, the one manipulates the others, you know, to have that sort of thing. And you kind of want, you know, the whole point, I guess, is to wonder, are they the best or the worst for each other? And I feel like this is, in a way, like, I feel like this one's maybe a little bit more obvious in that sense, because I, I didn't like John at all. I don't like him. <laughs> so, I, um, but I, I feel like they're kind of exploring similar things. And I almost wonder, you know, it, it makes me feel like, I guess, when I have this idea that I can't appreciate something like it. And I'm just wondering if a lot of it is where I'm just so unfamiliar with it, that when something like this is sort of, I mean, if I had to put a pacing to it, it's almost paced like a silent film in a lot of ways like it feels yeah. very much like a silent film that and that could have been the case with the year it was and the time and everything but it just feels like it was added you know the the dialogue was always second thought and i think that might be like a little bit of a barrier for me in some ways well it's interesting you bring up that because it, it did it actually reminds me of a silent film um, which I know Chris really likes as well, and we've talked about it a few times, uh, which is Sunrise from mm-hmm. FW Murnau. It, it really reminds me of that film as well. Maybe not as dynamic, or well, that's what I, I can't really say that because the cinematography is fantastic in this film as well. Maybe not as snappy as, uh, you know, in terms of its editing, but um, there's a lot of similarities between Sunrise and this to the point where you think, you know, Vigo was probably somewhat inspired by by sunrise as most filmmakers were when that came out because it was an instant it was instantly recognized as a masterpiece <laughs> for the right. genre like it, there, there was no waiting 50 years for critics to think oh this is really good like like la atlante which didn't become a hit until about 10 years after uh, vigo died um, oh, but sunrise was it was an instant hit um and i i would only assume that that vigo was somewhat um, in, inspired by that film and making this one because I do, I do see a lot of similarities in terms of themes like relationship dynamics and things like that um, in, in this film with, with Sunrise the, Okay, I'm curious um, I, I totally agree on the Sunrise point This the way that, Zach, something in you what you said triggered this memory for me and I, I don't know exactly what it was but um, one, one of the people in our in our comment thread on the um, Criterion Conversation sub said that Lottolante is a play on words from a Greek term that means equal in weight. And I've been thinking about that a little bit. I, I, I haven't verified that, but it's a very interesting idea because I think one of the things that happens is we see misery from both parties, right? Like kind of the beginning is Jean being more of the attacker sort of, or like the more of the the strength and then Juliet just being crushed and then Juliet goes on her own and tries to like run away. Uh, and even though we see her miserable, we also see John have a complete breakdown. All right. And when they get back together, there is this idea that they've kind of had this shared experience, um, even to the point of having a shared sexual experience at a distance. 
and maybe that they're kind of reconnected under this in a more equal status. Um, I don't know if that's the intent, but I, it, it, that's uh, that's what my where my mind goes on this. I mean, then again, you're going to see this. This is me trying to force a more positive ending than than maybe there is. So forgive me, <laughs> push back on this. But like, is there any chance that the way this is ending is saying like that kind of abusive relationship makes everybody unhappy, and it took John falling to the bottom of the ocean and like literally hitting rock bottom to kind of see that and there's a chance that they're gonna you know redefine this relationship on a more equal footing going forward well i guess that i i can see that and it i guess it's just hard to really know because i guess you can go about it either way either you realize that you know a lot of times violence and um domestic issues is a vicious cycle of things get better things get worse things get really worse things get better again and it's breaking that cycle is what gets it out the other end is you know there are cases where people can be in these bad relationships and there's a maturity and things change and it can work but you know i guess it just depends on because there's nothing that i can remember that would indicate either way Um, i guess it just depends on your worldview i guess was what that would come down to I think it's purposely open-ended, you know, Yeah. sort of, you can project your own sort of ending onto it, really. For me, I think it's probably going to, going to be a cycle. Like at the end of the day, they still live on a boat. They still have to do their job. I don't see how she's going to achieve what she wants to achieve, you know, going up and down the, the, the you know, the rivers of France, but um, yeah, maybe just hope, but it's, it's one of those ones where, and I like ambiguous endings, don't get me wrong, but it's one of those ones where it's sort of left up to the audience to decide what, you know, what we think. And I suppose <laughs> this is the thing with, with Jean Vigo, right? Because he, like he literally died like a month after this film came out. Yeah. So we, we, we don't know what his track run would have been like. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't really have much from him in terms of interviews or anything like that. Like for all we know, <laughs> we're reading way too much into this film, and it was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was just maybe it was just a poorly told story that you know they thought that this would be a good romance story, but really when you look at it, it's actually quite psychotic, maybe <laughs> from a from a modern context. But uh, yeah, like uh, taking the film at the val- like you know taking the film with the tools that we have, and you know looking at it from the context that we've been given, you know due to the lack of sort of follow up after this. Yeah, it's just one of those films where it kind of ends ambiguously. And if you're maybe an optimist, maybe you'd hope that things will get better and they'll learn their lessons and Jean will become less of an asshole. Um, and maybe Juliet will temper her expectations a little. Um, or, you know, they'll just go around and around in circles and it'll just end in, you know, either them just hating each other and living out in hate or, you know, maybe something worse, but we'll never know. How about this for a really off the wall idea? By the way, have, have either one of y'all seen Zero Park Conduit? Yes, great film as well. Actually, more, much more creative and dynamic in terms of the cinematography than this film, which is surprising. But there's a lot of really cool stuff in, in Zero to Conduit. I've heard about I've heard that. Yeah, I'm excited to see that soon. Um, okay, 
there is this common thing. I've heard Yodorovsky talk about this. He's a surrealist. I've heard Gilliam talk about this. Um, I think he's you know, much more commercial, but he still falls under that category. Um, and I'm wondering if Vigo thinks, I, I, for folks that really think they're an artist in the sense of like that artistic spirit guides their decision-making, guides their life, they're frustrated by the, the constraints that the world puts on their creativity, right? So is it possible one interpretation of this film, just going really out of, out of the, talk, speaking about talking out of my ass here, one possible interpretation of this film is that this is Vigo's way of telling the story of a naive artist who wants to change the world, Juliet, and, and seeing it through her eyes. And Jean represents like the harsh reality of the world and the maturity that an artist has to go through to kind of temper their expectations and find like a happy medium uh, uh, and uh, I don't know exactly where Jules would fit into this category, but Jules represents maybe somebody who's kind of been there and is on the other end and is just happy to be on the boat or something like that. But what do y'all think about that? Uh, I... Yeah, why not? All right. That's my takeaway then. Sound to me. Your argument is, is very sound. So yeah, why not? That's how I'm going to remember this then. So I don't have to focus on the terrible romance. <laughs> cool any any more thoughts or points on la talante um i i, I will sum mine up um because it's gonna have to be a movie i rewatch at some point because I, I do think this was really interesting to listen to it's just uh i don't know it, it's one of those ones i can appreciate a lot and i don't know if it's just not having the background in this sort of genre to go back and, you know, cause like, for instance, you know, I like horror. I can watch silent horror films all day. You know, that doesn't bother me because I have such a familiarity with the genre and this one is just, it's tough. It's a lot harder. So it'd be one I'd be curious to revisit later on. So if nothing else, I, I did enjoy you guys talking about it. If it helps think of this, like the get out of early romantic films. <laughs> that might help with the context it, there's another thing just for for context setting here uh what when did this come out 34 is that right 34 indeed yep okay so also in france in 1946 so 12 years later cocktail came out with beauty and the beast like, that's crazy to me that this movie was filmed 12 years before La Belle et la Bête. Um, it's super old, but it's like, yeah. it's still so good. It's crazy. Yeah. Which, 34, that was the same year as it happened one night, right? Just to kind of give another, like the complete other spectrum of this type of movie. What was that? Sorry, I didn't quite have uh, And, and uh, this was, it was the same year as uh, it happened one night, right? 34 oh, i think I, I think i think that is yeah i think that is correct so it's, you know it's definitely yeah. two different perspectives on a love two, on, a, on a romance for sure <laughs> and i love that film it happened one night is so funny yeah that's a good question actually so you had the the gay divorcee the merry widow which have you all seen the merry widow no oh that's a really fun one that's a really great one um uh lubich film 
You had Tarzan was big. Count of Monte Cristo was big. I'm just looking so at you 1934 had, films as well. Is that what you're doing? Looking up films uh -huh. 1934. Yeah. Judge Priest, which, oh my gosh. Okay. So I've been very, very slowly going through John Ford films. I've, I have a goal of seeing about 40 of them over time. I have a, this one box set has 28 of them and I'm about 14 in. So I saw Judge Priest recently. John Ford is obviously amazing and you don't have to defend him, but wow, did he make some racist movies. And Judge <laughs> is, that Priest him, is, that is that the one that Eureka are going to be releasing? I, I think, don't know. It, I think they are. It, Will Rogers plays this character who's supposed to be kind of like, you know, this bumbling judge and he's kind of at the end of his life. It's, it's a very good movie. Uh, it's a very, very good movie. It's a very entertaining watch. And Will Rogers, I don't really have any like affinity or memory with him, but he's amazing in this role. But wow, is it racist. And I think it's probably just John Ford kind of reflecting like what was happening in the, in the South at those times. Um, Cause I think it takes place in Kentucky. This must yeah, have been Kentucky. renamed because it, I'm looking at um there I there I knew there was there's a a film coming out in January from Eureka called The Sun Shines Bright, but like when you look at the the what you call it, oh sorry he had previously directed so it must be the same character Judge Priest, because it must have been a series of with the same character or something because the main character and this is also called uh, Judge Priest. Um, oh okay. Yeah, no, John it's... Ford. So there must have been maybe it's a sort of Soto sequel or based on the same series of stories or something. That's why I got confused. Yeah, so the sun shines bright. Looks like it's an anthology film. There's three Judge Priest stories together. Ah, okay, cool. So that makes sense. My apologies. Um, Didn't mean to cut you off there. Oh no, uh, it's fine. Anyways, that's just I. I mean, I was on a total tangent. It's just crazy that like all these movies are coming out, and then in Japan, quietly, uh, at least stateside you know we don't really hear about this a story of floating weeds also came out that year oh so yeah which is amazing so anyways um but more uh, and importantly then dames. dames yeah i was gonna say dames came out and the black cat oh wow we're, we're really covering 1934 here 1934 friend of the podcast uh so uh back in 2001 I don't know uh, how, how many of y'all listening were alive or at least thinking about movies at that point. Uh, but Jeff Messino was very much alive and made a decision that is a 20 year decision now to start a uh, DVD publishing house called Flickr Alley. And he's still thriving, which is amazing uh, that he's got, he has one of the longest tenures in the industry and he's just very quietly and uh, professionally putting out films from the silent era. He has, deep connections into some of the great archives uh, like MoMA and uh, the Cinematech franchise and some of these places where, you know, they kind of initiated uh, film restoration and preservation uh, many years ago and was a great interview. And we were very lucky to also be joined with, uh, or joined by Captain Gibb, who is complete on Flickr Alley. So that was a fun way to kind of connect them and, uh, and get a, a lover of Flickr Alley onto the same podcast. Uh, and uh, could, couldn't be more pleased with this interview. I hope you all enjoy it. And uh, there was about 100 other questions I had for Jeff, so maybe we'll try to get him on again. Okay, so very, very fortunate and very lucky today to have uh, Jeff Messina from Flickr Alley join us today for the podcast. I'm joined by uh, probably the, the, the leading expert, I know at least in silent cinema, Captain Gibb uh, from, from our criterion. So 
Captain, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Um, I had a lot of fun last time. Looking forward to this interview. Looking forward to being on your podcast again. Great. And Jeff, thanks so much for making time. Thank you. I'm yeah. Glad to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so so Jeff, uh, you have been running Flickr Alley as CEO since 2002. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, I, it's 2001. Um, oh, so was, you're celebrating your 20 years. <laughs> I believe we are. <laughs> Amazingly, um, no, actually, I think it was at the at the beginning of 2002 when we finally incorporated. Uh, that's amazing. So you. Uh, the you were entering into this market uh, mm-hmm. at a time when DVD sales were probably at their heyday, right? That is correct. Definitely the salad days of DVD sales when when studios were uh, doing a lot with their with their deep catalog titles, and yeah, we were coming up during that whole time. That's that's yeah. That that must have been really fun. And I know that there was so back then, so two thousand one, two thousand two. Uh, there was probably a really strong, because you have a, a theatrical component to your business as well, right? Where you license these prints out? Not like other distributors, other companies that uh, distribute films. So like not like Kino Lorber or Oscilloscope where there's a theatrical comp- component. This we, I, I, we have done a few theatrical releases. They've been limited. They have been um, uh, cautionary tales. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, be, because of the scale, the company has remained small. It's remained pretty lean uh, for the type of content that we've published. It's focused a lot on uh, films from the silent era, from the type of business relationships we had. Uh, for years, we worked um, uh, with David Shepard, who uh, had his company Film Preservation Associates, and then who was business partners with Lobster Films and who uh, together owned the Blackhawk Films Collection. And, um, and that's changed over the last few years. David uh, uh, passed away in early 2017. Okay. But we've continued on with uh, the Blackhawk Collection and with Lobster and Blackhawk Films. So um, uh, anyway, go ahead, I'm sorry. In, in 2021, is, is that where most of the, let's call it silent era preservation is happening between those two companies? Or where do you where do you go nowadays for, for that type of content? Well, they're still a partner with us, and Lobster does uh, is a, a great uh, partner with a lot of international archives. But no, there's a there's a huge world of of FIAF archives um, uh, uh, restoring their 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 film their films their film history their cultural heritage history. So uh, there are plenty of of if you want to just look at the silent era. There are still plenty of film restorations being done. Whether or not those films are commercially viable in a home video marketplace is another, you know, conversation to have, another question to ask. That's um, interesting. Um, so, if you were to say, like a lot of these movies, there, you know, I noticed there's a lot of shorts as well from that time, which makes sense, right? The way that knowing that the theaters, the kind of system was working back then. Um, but if you were to go restore, let's say you were just a family member, or maybe. Uh, part of the government where you wanted to make these restorations and you didn't necessarily have a reason to do it, or it wasn't tied to a commercial purpose yet. And you were kind of hoping to get that distribution after the restoration was done. Do you have any sense of what that would cost? Is it like, is it a per minute cost or is it kind of a per project cost? 
how does that typically work to go back and find these old prints and, you know, digitally kind of get them ready for, for production? Well, every project is different. And like, say, if you want to work uh, with, say, the Library of Congress here in the States, they're, they're a very collegial and collaborative archive. And there are people that have gone to them um, and have been real creative. They've, they've taken material from the library. They've, uh, they've scored it themselves. There are musicians that have scored things and have published themselves. And, um, uh, I, and, you know, I think that's great. So it, it really, uh, in, in that case, I think you work with sort of the, the library's set fees um, but with silent film projects, there has always been the hurdle that you have to uh, get a score in many cases to go with the film. Mm. So uh, unless, you know, it was like a late silent uh, film that had either a, a Vitaphone track or a movie tone track. Um, uh, and a lot of those don't survive. So you, just, there's always the, the financial hurdle and the logistical hurdle of doing the music as well as the film. So when I first got started, it was a matter of, uh, uh, I mean, we can talk about that matter of being sort of a, a, a film f enthusiast, film geek growing up, and then okay. uh, wanting to do something more entrepreneurial with film and trying to find something that was unique uh, that I was excited about, but then finding a musician. In that case, it was working, it was is getting to know Robert. Israel, who was here. Yeah, in that's the name I was going to ask you about. Yeah, I was trying yeah. to recall it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Robert was a, a great collaborator back then because I was an unknown. Another hero in my career was Charlie Tavish at Turner Classic Movies, who was who had established himself and was very kind to kind of um, take a chance on something that we had uh, that I had digitally uh, remastered and and gotten scored through Robert. So, and I mean, I had been, I'd gone to film school. I had worked in, in uh, production here in Los Angeles. This is, you know, the, the industry's here. And, uh, and, and I was familiar with post-production processes, post-processes. So I, I sort of knew what to do. I just never applied, never done it in that context. So that's how the first project got started. That was um, <laughs> The Garden of Eden uh, by Lewis Milestone. Yeah. Yeah back when i i've been i have actually um so eric joined our podcast as a guest um six months ago now okay, anyway around there and that was how i discovered Flickr alley honestly in that we were because just I mean, we'll get into this in just a second but eric's passion for silent film and uh and so I, I just because of the way that i am i like to go chronologically i'm always very curious as to just like a filmmaker, I'm always curious how like a boutique kind of independent label, how they, you know, project their own catalog. So mm -hmm. I started with, I found Garden of Eden and then found Judex and then uh, just finished Phantom. But I've been kind of slowly going through the catalog uh, mm -hmm. and I'm about to start, I'm a little bit intimidated by the Valentino project you did, which is your fourth release, uh, <laughs> but I'm about to start that soon. Um, but I, so how did you go? Cause there, you, you made a jump there that I'm curious about. So you said, you know, you were kind of in the film industry a little bit on the production side and you went to film school. And so then you got together and did Garden of Eden. But like that, there's a, there's an interesting jump there, I'm sure. How did that how did you pick that project and and how did you decide to focus on silent or, or was that even the intent in the beginning? Uh, no, that was the intent because I had I had grown up just fascinated by uh, films and history as a kid. 
so I, I had those um, uh, activity books from the 70s where you would uh, uh, cut out um, like a, you would make a zoetrope or a, a pernaxoscope. You would, you would do these different uh, devices <laughs> that would... Um, uh, that would sort of teach you about persistence of vision. And, and, and um, I um, inherited a projector when I was uh, 12 years old and I had found my way to the Blackhawk Films catalog. And I've told this story a few times where I um, could afford, because it was Super 8, I could only afford uh, the 200 foot reels that went on sale. So a trip to the moon was the first, uh, was the first, uh, reel that I bought. And I watched that over and over and over again and, uh, was fascinated by it. And, uh, there were other, uh, silent films that went on sale. Um, uh, Laurel and Hardy, the battle of the century pie fight was, uh, the only extent part of, uh, of, a, of a silent of that film uh, on a 200 foot reel. So I bought that was like, I think the second film I bought. Uh-huh. And it just started, it started with there because the projector was silent. <clears throat> and um, I just used to watch these eight millimeter prints silent. I used to go the Burbank library back in the day, you could go and check out uh, super eight film prints. And I used to, you know, uh, it was wow. a treat to go there once be driven there once in a while and check out films from the library. And, and uh, I would say probably uh, there's probably a lot of people my age that found the Blackhawk films catalog and, and learn and were able to see and learn about films that way. So that was probably why I picked silent films by, by the time, you know, I, years later I had, had learned quite a bit about different filmmakers and eras and genres and, and um, there was a, uh, a clip sales business here in Los Angeles. My, a gentleman named Michael Eukaitis ran a company called the Library of Moving Images and had some uh, uh, complete uh, prints of films that weren't otherwise available. And I took advantage of that basically. Wow. So that's how that came about. So first few releases. So. Eric, are you are you uh, are you connected with the George Eastman Museum? I am not. I am a member of, okay. so, I have, so I can go whenever I want. But I'm not a part of it. I would love to be, mm-hmm. um, but I wish I was. I do have a friend who works there. He uh-huh. works in the film restoration. He actually he worked at the Library of Congress first, and then he just moved there recently. Okay. So, <coughs> but I, I see their screenings a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, is that, I forget the name of the theater there, the Dryden Theater? I forget what yep, the Dryden. Yeah. yeah. So, um, um, do you, do you have, oh yeah, okay, go ahead, please. No, yeah, go ahead. Actually, I had a quick question for you because I was looking at kind of like the release dates for your first couple of movies, and there mm-hmm. seems to be a big gap between the Garden of Eden and Judex. I think there's like six years. So, I was just wondering if you could just tell us more, a little more about that. Uh, it wasn't, I don't know if it was years it was probably a year or two only because it was kind of something I did and then while I was doing other work and it just took a while to sort of get another project together so and I'm kind of blanking on how all the early projects came about in different ways uh diff- I was working more exclusively with collectors um here in the U.S. back at back at that point 
And, and so again, it was just finding the money and, you know, what, can, what do you want to do in a project and sort of establishing myself that way. So like, like any, uh, thing that someone's passionate about and pursues, it's just a matter of, of, of networking and being patient and, you know, uh, putting in a lot of sweat equity, all that stuff. Well, like the, the first, it's so ambitious too. Like a lot of times, if you look at a lot of people that are jumping into the, the boutique kind of Blu-ray game now, you know, it's like one film, maybe a month or one film a year or something as they can do it, right? One to two films a year, maybe. And they kind of go, but your early projects are Judex, which is, I guess, depending on how you look at it, like a, you know, serial, serialized film, I guess, right? So many films, then Valentino, which is several films, discovering cinema, and then 50 fair, 54 rare and restored films. Like these are very ambitious projects for physical media right out of the gate. Um, did you well, just kind of dive in? Or, yeah. I, well, I, I did. I, I was certainly passionate about all of them, but they, they all came about in different ways. And, and, and around, um, uh, around the time of discovering cinema and Safe from the Flame, I had established a, a working relationship with David Shepard and Film Preservation Associates and, 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 and Lobster Films. And I was able to uh, bring to market projects that they had done that had been released through Arte or other labels at, at the time in, in Europe. Oh, nice. So that's how those projects came about. And um, I mean, it wasn't too long after that we did uh, George Melier's first Wizard of Cinema. And I mean, that was, that was a huge project so that I was really happy to be involved with. Um, but I know you talk to a lot of different people and, and, as a distributor slash publisher, I mean, I've mostly, Flickr Alley is mostly a public publishing company that I've produced different things in different ways through the years. But Flickr Alley is really a publishing company. And, um, and as such, it's not, it's not me uh, doing the, the work of an archivist, which would be doing the curatorial work in, and, and going from there uh, onto preservation work uh, and restorations and, and, uh, and then bringing through the things to market through the archives. I, I relied on project partners to kind of help me with that. So Flickr Alley was really the branding, the look, the packaging, the putting together the booklets, things that we've, that the brand has, has kept intact basically so uh it's not the cheapest product out there but it's but it's but the company still survives because there's it's still you know at this point economically viable um and that's changing those are you know that's i don't have a crystal ball to see like where will we be in 10 years but but as long as uh and as long as projects keep coming and we can still find a way to do this we'll still be doing this just really quickly before we, because I definitely want to talk about the future. I uh, the last question I had about kind of the origins was the name. So it was Cecil Court in London in the yeah, in the, like the teens and twenties, right? It was mm-hmm. kind of like the beginning of the business around silent filmmaking in the UK. Yeah, that what that is correct. Okay, and so uh, is there a particular reason? Did you just like the name, or just like the title yeah. of silent films, or okay? That, that is correct. You're looking for a name of a company and you're, and you know something about film history and it's like, that could kind of work for a brand. Uh-huh. <laughs> a maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people don't make it 20 years, so you obviously chose the right one. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. 
Um, That's really cool. Have you had yeah, a chance to go yeah. visit London and go visit the, the, the that street? I have absolutely. <laughs> so, and I've 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 talked to Kevin Brownlow about uh, about uh, social court and about yeah yeah. I we try to go once a year. Obviously, the virus has kind of shut that down. We try to go to London once a year if we can, and I didn't know that history. So I'm guaranteed to go to Cecil court next time <laughs> and go see what kind of coffee shops or whatever are there now, but, uh, bookstores, bookstores, like London does a good job of putting those little blue plaques of like famous sites. So I'm hoping they have some blue plaques talking about the, the, the film scene there. Absolutely. I think they're, they're proud of that. Very proud of it. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. There absolutely will be something there. Eric, how did you first discover Flickr Alley? How did I, I think I was looking for, probably a trip to the moon. Mm-hmm. I think looking for that release because that was like one of my first silent films I've seen. Mm-hmm. And then stumbling upon that release, which is fantastic. And I really like the documentary that comes with as well. Uh-huh. I think that's one of my earlier insights into film restoration, like what goes into it, especially of the early silent films. So yeah. yes, I think that would be my first one. And then from there, just, you know, looking more into the silent films and, realizing how amazing the catalog is and how you guys release things that nobody else releases, like those cinema, Cinerama releases. Like nobody else that I know of is releasing Cinerama on disc. Yeah, there's loosely, there's a, there's a mission statement bringing film history to new audiences. And, and at a certain point, it was like making, again, through networking, making different friendships. It's you want to branch out from just the silent era. And I mean, that's how uh, the projects with uh, Cinerama Inc. came about with uh, uh, Pacific Theaters and Decurian Corp and the people that sort of own the technology. And they're great people to work with. Um, uh, Dave Strohmeyer is, 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 is super passionate uh, film historian. And um, uh, and just, I mean, that's really every partner has just been a, a kind of a, a different, different friendship or collaboration that has turned into, you know, uh, a working relationship, basically. So towards the beginning, we kind of talked about the commercial viability of the mm-hmm. films that you release. And with Flickr Early, you have, there was two, now there's three, right? Different lines. You have the main line, the new Flickr Fusion line, and the made on demand line. So how do you kind of make that determination? which line a film goes into. I'm assuming it goes into like the commercial viability of it. Or can you just tell us more about that? Yeah, you, you've, you've assumed correctly, basically. The, the, the market has changed. And I know you probably hear this a lot, how tremendously the market has changed for published media. It's no longer the, the salad days of DVD sales. And so, um, uh, and but at, at the same time, you're you're looking for new markets. You know, we're, what inroads can we make into TVOD or SVOD or you know upcoming AVOD? And uh, several years ago, this was while uh, David Shepard was was still alive. There was the opportunity to to republish stuff that he had previously published with Image Entertainment, and uh, we were not set up to do manufactured on demand. So we did, we did some fundraising around that and we were able to bring to, uh, his older titles, uh, uh, keep them back, to bring them back in print uh, because, you know, when they go, things go out of print, sometimes they go for hundreds of dollars on eBay. And, 
And yeah. he was like, well, that's not fair. Let's find a way to do this on, you know, to do this more economically. And so that's exactly what the MOD line was about. And it all, and then it branched out into other types of projects that, um, uh, would involve uh, things that had not been published previously and things using, uh, uh, Blu-ray disc manufactured on demand. And just recently coming out of the pandemic, it's, it, there was the idea of, of, uh, there's been sort of a backlog of projects that we haven't been able to do. And there was the idea of, you know, we can't, it's gotten so the cost hurdle is, has gotten so high for, for, uh, the type of media that we publish, which is replicated media with a printed booklet and, and nice packaging. Is there a budget way to do this uh, more like MOD pricing, like 20, 25 bucks. And that's where the new Flickr fusion line kind of came to be. So we've only done one publication. Now this is Francis sucks Bushman, but we have some others lined up and, and, um, it's a bit of an experiment, but it's it's kind of saying, hey, the idea is to try to get this out in a in an economic economically feasible way that sort of acknowledges the reality of the marketplace. So when I look at um, you know you kind of watch trends in home video and and last year there were people that were um, stuck at home. And so there was a huge uptick in people just watching and streaming things. And I know certain companies really were able to take advantage of that. Some, some distributors that had new films that would normally play in a theater were able to transition that into a, into an online digitally distributed um, market and, and do okay. Um, And there was, I'm just trying to look at the figures. There was like $3 billion in revenues in just the first half of 2020 in, in um, just not just electronic sell-through and, and TVOD and SVOD, but also in physical media. There was a huge uptick in yeah. physical media sales. But a lot of it was your price point. It was like your $5 DVD. So a lot of it was, was titles that had been out already, but it was, it was being resold at a lower price point. And I think that's where those got snapped up or bought online quickly. Um, but we've hung in there. I mean, there was still, it, there, it, there wasn't, there weren't many projects being done last year, but there's been sort of a backlog, backlog and we're still, we're, we're really this is probably answering another question, but we're really still catering with the regular DVD line, the Flick Rally line that's replicated media. We're really, uh, uh, focused on, on, on collectors. So people that just want to get that want to own it tangibly you know, want to have it in their collection. From a collector's standpoint, I I kind of like the higher price point in a way, if I'm being honest, because it sort of feels like I'm contributing, like in the way that I would donate to like my local museum or the way that <laughs> I would support like the local, you know, like these different things. Like, like what you're doing is the purest kind of form of cinema in a way, right? The oldest, the original, like this is the foundation of everything we know, right? Um, every company is sort of bringing that you mentioned is sort of bringing a version of film history to new audiences as you know, is, is, is in a way. Um, uh, but yeah, I think every I, people that are still doing published media, they have to know that they're they're uh, if, if, if their hearts in it, if they're a boutique label they're you know, they, <laughs> 
they're spending a lot of time. They're, they're making it something that they would want to buy and collect, you know, so that to, to your point. Yeah. Like no, nowhere is that more true for me than recently I finished Judex and mm. like that is from a storytelling perspective, I feel like that's setting the template that people are still using on Netflix and stuff today when they're building like a serialized kind of season one of some, I mean, like the way the Judex is constructed over those 12 episodes is, it feels so warm and like known, right? Yeah. Because they were the ones that were setting that template. Uh, Fouillade and and uh, all the filmmakers back then, they, yeah, they, they uh, brought their, their life experience to their uh to their filmmaking um uh Alice-y, uh all, all those those people from and, and and i will say that it's great that pathé archives is is not, not only restored this film over the last 10 20 years but they're now bringing it to market in a way i think judex is coming out in a new publication in france which which will be great because it'll be an improvement on what I, you know, was published through Flickr Alley years ago and, 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 uh, and much appreciated. They did something last year, as you guys might know with LaRue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that's fine. That happens. And, and that, and, and uh, I, I welcome that basically. You mentioned how you kind of want to like create the type of product that you would want to buy yourself. Mm-hmm. So for you personally, do you have a favorite release that Flickr Alley has done? I get asked that. That's a great question. They all, they're all special creations. Uh, you know, you, you, you get involved with each one. And so um, I'm kind of proud of all of them. They're, they're, they're all different. There are ones that I wish sold better in the marketplace. Like there's this wonderful collection of, of French films uh, we our French masterworks publication that we did in partnership with the Cinematheque Francaise. I wish that had sold out several times over, you know. Uh, but that being said, um, I, I'm I'm glad to kind of done all of them. It, it each project comes together uh, for different reasons. And, um, and it has to do with the type of partners that, that we work with and what they want to do. In recent years, uh, a lot of projects are, they're more sponsored. You have to be more careful and I mean, considering the marketplace about what you're going to bring to market, what you're going to actually publish. And uh, so things that I might've taken uh, more of a chance on years ago, I, I it, it will moving forward, those will hopefully become Flickr fusion titles okay. or part of the MOD line. You mentioned that you don't know where the future is going to hold in 10 years. Mm. So it's hard to know. Uh, but let's just like looking just one year out or one to two years out. Do you have, do you keep like a production schedule that far out or oh, how yeah. far do you? Okay. Yeah, we do. There are things that are that like, there was a, there was a backlog Think First off, things can take uh, several years to sort of come to fruition. Okay. And, uh, and I, I'm fortunate enough now, we're fortunate enough to work, projects sort of come to us. And so as long as we can find a way to, to publish them, as long as we have partners that, that want to uh, move forward with some sort of publication and we can make it work financially and, and we'll, we'll still move forward. And so we have projects basically slated uh, into next year. 
we just announced, again, there are more collaborative uh, projects, publishers. We've, we've collaborated with different publishers, um, uh, Powerhouse Films, Indicator Media, uh, Eureka, which is the Masters of Cinema line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those have been great, basically. And I hope to do more with those, we, um, with those partners. Uh, we all seem to know each other or I know, I don't, there's a lot I don't know, obviously, but, but there's, there's several that I do and it's, it's, it feels very collegial. Um, well, it's, it does definitely have that, I don't know if fraternity is quite the perfect word for it, but like there's, there's kind of a known group there. I, we, I just found out that Indicator is started from the guys that were running Tartan back in the DVD days. Uh-huh. I, didn't know about, I didn't know about that connection, but that's, that's, I, I bought so many of their Asia Extreme line back when they were. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they really specialized in in Asian cinema, if I recall, back back in the day. Correct. That's how I knew them, anyways. Yeah, they, yeah. They introduced me to Takashi Miike, and, and I kind of <laughs> learned a lot through through the, the work they were doing. So it's cool to see them now doing it in Blu-ray under a different name, and you know their box sets are obviously very beautiful in that. But um, yeah, oh, they're doing great work. Um, I, what I was gonna say is is uh, we just uh, we work collegially with other partners. Uh, so we're now doing a project um, uh, directly with Lobster, and we just announced a, a uh, Julian Duvivier a collection of nine films he he produced in the 1920s that they were really the lead in doing the restoration work with a lot of partner archives. And oh, wow. for us, it's re- really what I would call reflected glory of, of a lot of people's work, a lot of archivists, a lot of people... Uh, over in, and well, really around the world, uh, but we're thrilled to uh, to announce it today. We announced it today, which is actually Duvivier's uh, birthday, um, and uh, and that's going to be coming out uh, on December seventh. So, I mean, we're just excited about whatever the next project is. There's no shortage of of great projects to do, and if you and I would assume if you talk to other people at these other labels, they probably say the same thing. There's probably a ton of projects that they want to, you know, that they're sure. looking at doing. I think Agva has uh, 40,000 titles or something in their, in their personal collection. <laughs> yeah. You know, in, in, in uh, with something like that, then it's just a matter of, of looking at from a purely archival perspective, yeah. you just oh. want to do, you want to do curation. You just want to, make sure that you're saving whatever elements you have, you know, and making sure that things are, are, are properly stored, you know, in the proper climate control conditions, hopefully in archival conditions. Yeah. 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 That was crazy. We, we were fortunate enough to be able to grab the attention of Justin uh, over at vinegar syndrome. His name is um, law Liberty, Justin law Liberty. So uh-huh. we had a deep talk in there around uh, preservation. I didn't realize all that went into the, the actual condition of vinegar syndrome, not the name of the company, but that actual, you know, chemical condition. Oh yeah. What well, that the company's named after. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was, it's pretty wild what happened. You want to prevent that. <laughs> right. Right. It's not a good thing. <laughs> exactly. So once you do that curation, once you, then, then you can think about, well, what, what is good for potential for, for preser- res- preservation or restoration work. And then you want to talk about potentially a digital workflow and because you know films are if to the you know 
they're more probably uh, digitally uh, preserved and restored restored than they are photochemically at this point. Mm-hmm. And then that open, open, opens up a whole new world of, of things you need to consider, which is uh, uh, digital formats. And, and the problem there is digital obsolescence. So you have to make sure that you're, you're thinking about digital preservation going forward. So, um, but it's just how the technology's changed. It's how, you know, the world of film has changed and now archiving has changed. Hmm. There's different considerations. Would digital obsolescence be like accidentally deleting files, for example, like that kind of thing? Well, it would be, uh, <laughs> I guess that would be one form of obsolescence. I'm talking about where, where files and, and formats um, uh, and the softwares that create created them become obsolete. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, where you have, you have, let's say files, say your DPX files are on, LTO3 or LTO4, and you need to think about um, machines and readers that can still read LTO3 or LTO4 because now we're moving into LTO9. Questions like that, questions that that studios and archives have to grapple with when they think about um, uh, the, the world, of, you know, our digital future, basically. It's like on the iPhone when if you have like an iPhone 5 at this point, it basically won't support any of the new apps. You have to upgrade the, uh, the technology to even play the new apps. Um, silly example. But, no, yeah. it's it's that's apropos. Well, what do you watch when you want to relax? What's what's the thing <laughs> that's a good <laughs> what? I still love everything. Um, I just recently bought a collection of uh, from Kino Larber, a Ken Jacobs collection uh-huh. that they published in the last several months or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, you know, Warner Archive, which owns the MGM library, just did another Tex Avery collection. Mm-hmm. And uh, some friends and colleague at Classic Flicks, they did the Our Gang, some Our Gang publications over the last year or so. If I can do some shout outs to some other friends. Um, so uh, I wish I had more time <laughs> to watch stuff. <laughs> Are you a one man show? How, how big is Fukurali? No. Uh, it's it's a small lean company uh there are just a couple people that are full-time a bunch of part-timers freelancers um and uh and uh it is not it is not scaled uh like some other companies is that is that a drawback i don't know but it's it uh it's it's holding steady in the market and so i'm i'm proud of that we're still here no, that's the thing I've been the most surprised at and just talking to several companies now is that they're, they're, a lot of them run pretty lean. I mean, I think Kino is probably the one exception because of all the different businesses they're in. But a lot of these Blu-ray production houses, like I was shocked to find that Second Sight is one person. Um, well, I was one person for a number of years. Yeah. That, that's, that's insane. I, you have to wear so many hats at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive, actually, when you think about it. Because they've been milestone around a while, haven't they? What's that? Yeah, my, yeah, milestone is just a two people. Dennis and Amy, yeah, and they. Yep. they're wonderful people. Yeah, they're uh, fantastic what they've been able, what they do and continue to do the work mm-hmm. that they do. Yeah. So and very collaborative with with different colleagues. That's cool. Um. So what I guess the, the last question I that's kind of on top of mind for me, and you know, of course, Eric, I'll give you a chance as well. But the last thing I'm just curious about is, um. For people that 
don't know Flickr Alley yet uh, and don't and don't have my same uh, quirks uh, of, of having to start from number one and just see them chronologically, where would you suggest people start as, if, if they're maybe curious about silent cinema, not necessarily deeply passionate about it, but are curious to check out your line? Is there a title you point people to or? I don't because they're, it's, it's a varied collection at this point. I would point mm-hmm. them to the website. Um, I wish it was a Flickr Alley channel, uh, where, but there is a Criterion channel. There is, uh, we work partner with Oscilloscope. Um, we mm-hmm. partner with the Cohen Media Collection. There are, other, there, there, there are titles of ours out there uh, that they can check out. And um, I mean, it really depends if you, I'm biased because my first love was silent, was silent cinema. And I've had the, the pleasure of, of publishing a trip to the moon <laughs> a few, in a few different iterations. Um, so always with, uh, with, with George Melies, I would certainly recommend that. I, I'm really proud of the Chaplin uh, collections that we've yeah. been a part of publishing. Uh, so the Chaplin Keystone, uh, Chaplin at SNA and Chaplin Mutuals. Um, and then other parts of film history, I'm really proud of the Cinerama titles uh, and, and very proud of the film noir titles that, that we're working with uh, currently. Uh, they're great collaborative partners, uh, Eddie Muller, Alan Rohde, Daryl Sparks. We love working with them. Uh, consider ourselves very fortunate. But in terms of uh, where to start, any one of those, any one of those three genres, I guess, silent, widescreen cinema, cinerama, noir, you can't go wrong with any of those. Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically that, that covers a lot of the questions I had. I think it's a great intro to, to Flickr Alley. Um, Eric, what what else is there? Anything else on your mind, or otherwise we can give uh, we can give Jeff his night back. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I'm glad you're What's a fan. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, it wasn't a question as much as uh, I know you guys said you personally don't do much with the restoration, but I think taking those restorations that are done and making them accessible to people is incredibly important because I know there's so many restorations out there that people just can't see because you know they're not on disc. And um, yeah. There's usually reasons for that. There, there are always a reason. There's, there are, uh, there are uh, considerations with available rights, um, uh, and it can be music rights, underlying rights. Uh, it can just be that there's, it's just it's owned by an entity, and it's just not part of their their current business plans. Basically, if it's a studio title. So there's always reasons why there are there aren't great restorations that are that are currently available in a published media form, or that are being streamed. So, yeah, and I think it's important just to have some of these things that are available in such high quality, right? Because you can go on YouTube and search up tons of silent films, but they're going to be in awful quality, right? Um, so my sister, she's a teacher, and they read like Hugo. They read Hugo. They watched the movie. So she did a little Melier unit with them. And I let her borrow my box set because, you know, she could have pulled it up on YouTube and had those pixelated, you know, YouTube prints. But I think having the kids watch like an actual like a legit restoration of it in good quality really probably brought it to life more than something like a YouTube print would. So just a general thanks for releasing those wonderful sets. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And, and I understand in a, in a teaching environment, you're trying to get what is available to try to, to make your point. So um, 
I understand why that that's done. Uh, that makes sense. And it, but it is great when you can see something uh, that looks great, that, that it really uh, it has more impact basically. How, is, how it was seen originally, right? That's the fun of it. Yeah, that's, I, it, well, or something that emulates how it was seen originally. So yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yes, that's true. That's true. I think yeah. a lot of those Melies films, I mean, those were part of, those were thought part of um, uh, exhibitions and, and like fairs and those weren't necessarily shown theatrically. You know, film exhibition was such kind of a fascinating world, really. There were the whole being seen in a theater hadn't been established yet. Yeah, it's like a circus almost, right? Like traveling around and basically showing off the new, like the cinema. Yeah, and they, in some in some iterations, they had troops of actors that would do voiceovers. We have one of our publications has uh, people uh, acting out voices uh, for the characters in A Trip to the Moon. Um, and that's just one of the ways that that film was shown when it was originally distributed. So, and Melius had the problem like many other early producers uh, and in the early days of cinema of things being pirated and trying to copyright things by putting, you know, symbols, uh, logos in the actual scene or just having people like his brother, you know, based here uh, in the States, I believe in Texas, just keeping an eye on things, keeping an eye on business interest here in the, in the United States and trying to establish its own, its own entity here. Uh, to take advantage of that so, and to not be taken advantage of. As soon as film was invented, movie pirates were invented, like right alongside of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> I, know, it's, I mean, it makes sense. That's just crazy. Yeah. yeah. I thought, What's that? Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say like, you know, the Lumiere Brothers film, a sprinkler, sprinkler, the hoser hose, however the translation is. Have you, I'm sure you're familiar with that one. Like how many iterations of that have been made over the years? Yeah, it was made again and again. So think about a new technology that comes online today and you're going to have a ton of competitors. Right. Um, you know, it, it, you don't think that you're the only solar panel company <laughs> getting to the market, you know, whatever. Well, when you phrase it like that, it makes total sense. I just, I guess I hold some of that stuff as sacred because I'm just, it seems so distant and like, it was like the original of this thing, which is now so common in, in film. It holds like a special place in me. It's feeling sacred. But I mean, yeah, at the time it was just, hey, this is selling tickets. So we have to find a way to go <laughs> sell some more tickets like he's doing it, right? Yeah. There's some great, there's so many uh, great historians that have written about early cinema. Richard Abel is one. If you haven't read Kevin Brownlow, The Parade's Gone By. You know, Kevin is a personal friend and a men been a mentor to me. And he's written three great books specifically in silent cinema and has done so much great work in his career um yeah but there are others as well where you can read more about the silent era uh but every era of of film history is is fascinating sure so. well look i mean thank you so much this has been great i uh yeah, yeah thank, really thank you guys uh good luck with they live by film <laughs> thank you <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Homage to They Live by Night. That's right. Yeah, thank you again for catching that. Or They Live. Wasn't They Live a John Carpenter film? Well, that was that's one question we get sometimes. If it's really? Like related to that. I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, it makes sense. And uh, is it earlier noir? They drive by night. You don't want to get confused with that either. <laughs> oh, actually, I have to that one. It's Humphrey Bogart and Ida Lupino. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Some homework. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Final iteration. Anyway, um, you guys, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Yeah. Yeah. Same for me, and uh, we'll we'll keep uh, we'll keep supporting as long as you keep producing. So. Okay. Um, great. Thank you. All right, and welcome back. Uh, now we're going to be talking about Down by Law, which was written and directed by Jim Jarmusch. I don't even know if I said that right, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> um, this uh, movie is uh, came out in, I don't know, 86 or something. Yeah, 86. It's about two men are framed and sent to jail where they meet a murderer who helps them escape and leave the state. So we are going to start with, I know Chris is a huge Jim Jarmusch fan, so I'd like to hear what you think about this one, even though I'm pretty sure I already know. Yeah, sure. So the world, what the world thinks about it first, um, they shoot pictures has it at 610. So it's the 610th best film ever made. Um, right behind Rocky. <laughs> and right ahead of Band Apart, which is a funny, just a funny trio right there. Band Apart's a funny one because this is very Goddardy. So um, down by law, I mean, is very Goddardy. So having Band Apart uh, with it is fun. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah, very influenced by Goddard. Um, my take on this movie is Jim Jarmusch and I seem to share a sense of humor. Um, I, he's probably a little bit more cynical than I am, but I love watching his movies. I could watch him go fishing with John Leary for 12 episodes if he ever was to make a show called Fishing with John uh, with just random celebrities on a boat. I'd be in on for that. And I was, and it was amazing. I think there's just something in the way that Jim Jarmusch frames the world and sees the world. I think he finds the humor in, in situations in a way that I really love. Um, and I have not seen anybody that's been able to handle Roberto Benini this well. Um, I think Benini's an interesting character um, who's not overly funny, even though he's very loud and you know, big with his comedy. And I think he was, this is a great character for him. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, this, this movie to me, is, it just represents a lot of the reasons why I like Jim Jarmusch. It's just very cool. And I think it's, it kind of hits you. It's got a deeper message, but you wouldn't know it because it just plays so, so calm and natural. Um, I could watch this movie again right now. I really liked it. What do y'all think? Um, Adam, I guess, Zach? Uh, I can take from here. Um, so I have a kind of an interesting relationship with Jarmusch. Um, I've seen, before this one, I saw three of his films. First one I saw was Dead Man, which I absolutely love. Dead Man, so far, is still my favorite from him. Uh -huh. um, from, there, uh, from there, I watched The Dead Don't Die in Theaters, which I, there were moments of it I, I really liked. Um, it didn't work for me overall. But there's there's still lines in there. I'll quote because me and my girlfriend went and saw it. So you know, every once in a while we'll quote it. But you know, it didn't really leave an amazing impression on me. But you know, it wasn't a big deal. And then I watched probably his most, I would say one of his most revered, which is Ghost Dog, the way way of the samurai. How's that? Ghost Dog. I'll just call it with that. I can't remember the subtitle mm -hmm. part of it. Um, and I did not like it at all. Really didn't like it. Um, it was one of those ones where I just kind of felt it was quirky for the sake of it was uh, it was a lot of the issues i hold with wes anderson and i started to kind of worry that that was kind of what i am because I'm, I'm famously not a fan of wes anderson 
because um, I just don't <laughs> connect with his comedy. With, uh-huh. But with Down by Law, I felt a lot more positive about it in general. Um, I, I really felt a lot closer to Dead Man. I really just appreciated the humor a lot more. I love the way the film looks. I love the characters. Um, and, you know, it didn't feel... It had quirk. I'm not going to say it has quirky elements, but it has a sense of humor that just doesn't feel as artificial as, and that's, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to harp too much on Wes Anderson, but that's kind of the problem I've always had is I always kind of felt like it came off a little artificial and it doesn't here. I think it's just a legitimately pretty funny and heartwarming movie at times. Totally. I'm glad to hear you like this one. Um, I need to see Ghost Dog again, actually. I, I remember seeing it in theaters, so I don't know when that came out, 2002, 2003-ish, some, somewhere in that range. And uh, I loved it, but I was in my peak, like, quirky phase, uh, and I loved things that were quirky just for the sake of it. <laughs> so I, I am curious to see how that holds up, but uh, I'm glad this one won you over. I mean, granted, I, I'm in the minority there. A lot of people, I think I think Criterion just did a release of it very recently. Yeah, um, yeah it was earlier this year, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people love that film. It just doesn't work for me. It really turned me off from, like, continuing a lot of his stuff until now. So, um, but I like this one enough, and I do want to watch Only Lovers Left Alive, which has been on my watch list forever. That's one with uh, Tilda Swinton and uh, Adam Driver. Is Adam Driver in that one? I knew Tilda Swinton. Maybe. Is that Adam Driver's in one called Patterson. I could have... Maybe I'm, he's in I'm, that I'm, one as well. I maybe it's Tom Hiddleston. Is that it? It's That's it, Tom Hiddleston. Okay, yeah, Tom Hiddleston's on it. Okay. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that actually. What year did that come out? Oh, 2013. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's okay. pretty pretty recent. Um, yeah, I don't so, want to you. Yeah, like I don't really have much of a prior history with Jarmouche. Um, so I, I was gonna say Samurai Dog, <laughs> Ghost Dog, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, is is on my list for the Criterion Challenge. 2022 so we'll be watching that at some point next year um mm-hmm. the only film i have seen from jarmouche prior to this was stranger in paradise which i did like mm-hmm. i remember liking that one um this film i didn't love it for the most part um well, well when i say the most part as in like linearly speaking for like a good chunk of the film i didn't love it like i got it you know you know quick kitschy sort of noir you know, kind of like if Cassavetes made a film noir, you know, very dialogue heavy, character driven, not really sort of much happening in terms of action. Um, but, you know, I got it and I was like, yeah, this is this is fine. Um, you know, I can I can roll with this, but I, I didn't love it um, until the final third of the film that's sort of based in the in the swamp. Mm-hmm. Then I was like, this film is awesome. You know, the way it's, um, I, we, we mentioned this before when we were talking about the American friend, uh, the cinematographer, uh, Ron, Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie Mueller. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we mentioned that obviously he did cinematography for, for Jim Jarmusch along with obviously doing it for uh, Vim Benders and like the cinematography in like the last third of this film is insane you know the way they, they he shoots the swamp and the paths and the trees and the the river it has really really grabbed me because up until then you know i thought okay this is okay just like just cool tracking shots and you know when they're sitting in the car and driving it's it's pretty cool looking but i wasn't blown away um but yeah the last last third of the film really sort of bumped it up so 
uh, like I get it, you know, it, like I said, it's kind of Godardy, it's kind of Cassavetes-y, it has a film noir kind of tinge to it. Um, yeah, I just thought it was fine. I, I, yeah, I thought it was a good film. You know, like it's solid, you know, solid seven out of 10, four out of five, whatever, whatever way you like to put it. Uh, another connection we have to, I'm going to make sure I don't say, Vin Vendors, is that how you actually say his name? I know it gets- Yeah, it's yeah. German, the W's are V, yeah. so Vin Vendors. Yeah. Um, Wings of Desire had- uh, Claire Dennis as the assistant director. Yes, as did indeed. this film. Also had Claire Dennis. Oh, so, I didn't before she became that. a director herself. That was I didn't catch that in the credits. That's an interesting one. Jarmusch is like subtly working with a lot of cool European people on his films. Um, he doesn't accept American money. This is like one of the few he did from the way he puts it. Already, okay. He says there's too much like expectation. And too much studio interference when you're dealing with it. So he usually gets funding from outside the US. Okay. Like that doesn't surprise me from the two films I've seen from him, you know, that he, because obviously they do have very, they're, 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 obviously they're distinctly American in terms of their characters and the setting. You know, this is very much a New Orleans or Louisiana kind of film. Mm-hmm. You know? Very much, like even as speaking as a non American, it's distinctly Louisiana, you know, but. Yeah, the actual how the film is shot and how the characters you know go about is, is quite un-American. Um, Chris, just out of curiosity, before we go too deep on this, because I'm just curious myself, um, now that we're kind of talking about it, you mentioned that Latalante is his favorite film. Where did you find that? Is there like a list somewhere where he said his favorite films? I'm just kind of um, curious before we go any deeper to see if there's any connections. Yeah, I found I, I was trying to find that actually. So I found three or four articles that referenced that, um, but I couldn't find the source. I'll, I'll try to okay. find it. In I actually, I was just Googling it. So I found an article from IndieWire who are pretty reliable. They're not like hoaxers. Um, so, okay. He originally shared it with a, with some, with a group called Open Culture. So his top 10 films um, which is a nice connection to us in there. So number 10 is Rome, Open City. Uh, so that's Rossellini. So yeah, we have one European film. Number nine is Broken Blossoms by D.W. Griffith. Uh, anyone familiar with Broken Blossoms by, by Griffith? No, I want to see it now. I've never heard of it. To say. I mean, eight. yeah, I mean, it's it, with Griffin. It's his, it's his, his, his real famous ones seem to be easy to find, but anything that's weird, not yeah, his typical seem a little bit harder. Yeah. Uh, number eight is Seven Samurai, so you're well, not European, but you know, foreign. Uh, number seven is Mouchette, which is Bresson, and I get definitely get kind of Bresson vibes from the two Jarmouche films I've seen. And mm-hmm. uh, number six is The Cameraman, that's Buster Keaton. Uh, number five is Sunrise, which obviously we talked about earlier with from mm-hmm. Renault. Number four is Bob Le Flambeur, which we've brought up on the podcast before, it's a Melville film. Number three Mm -hmm. is not They Live by Film, but They Live by Night, (laughs) where we got the name of the podcast, the Nicholas Ray film, They Live by Night. Uh, Number two is Tokyo Story. And number one, as as we said, is is Latalante. So, yeah, definitely. Like, I can can kind of see, like, Bobla Flambeur, we mentioned it before. It's not really new wave, but it has new wavy bits in it. It's, It's not a standard straightforward crime film like down no. by law um no. so yeah i can I, I i get it you know i get how why he shoots his films these this, this way he definitely has a has a distinct 
uh, style. But anyway, sorry, you, I didn't want, I didn't mean to go off topic too much. No, just while we're on the while we're on those tangent, you know, I I could like, do y'all or did y'all get the sense that this could have been a Ja Zhangi film as well? Like this could have been Ja Wu. Yeah, yeah, it's a good shout. Now that I now now that you said it, I wasn't thinking it when I was watching it, but um, now that you said it, yeah, Zhao Wu kind of vibes. That question's beyond my pay grade. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just think like there, there's these certain types of directors that have this sarcasm kind of in their characters that drive a lot of the way they react to the world and kind of maybe. Like, I don't want to say that they laugh at the world from a, from a pretentious standpoint, but they just kind of take what's happening around them with, with a little bit of a chuckle and kind of like, well, you know, sort of like, a, well, this is just life, you know, kind of throw it their is hands what up. It is. it is what it is, right? Yeah. And I, uh, and I think that plays very well into the, the poem that this is based on as well, um, even though the poem is more optimistic, because uh, this is based off of... Um, uh, Sorry, uh, I had this ready to go. Um, the road not taken with Bob Frost. Yes, yeah, Bob, uh, which was a big joke in the movie as well, right? Yeah, um, which I'm curious. Have you guys? I'm guessing you guys have read that poem before, right? I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Um, the, do you guys actually know the history behind that poem? No. So he wrote that as a basically to make fun of his friend because, you know, for some reason, poets just wrote poetry to their friends. I, I guess that's how you practice. But basically, he would go on walks with his friend and his friend would always be like, man, I wish we took the other road. Like every single time they went for a walk. So he finally, you know, just to be a little snotty, he wrote that poem to see if his friend would understand that he's making fun of him. So what you're saying <laughs> is that Robert Frost wrote a diss track. Yes, he wrote a diss wow. track. And it's there been like one of the most like misquoted and like mis like represented poems ever since. So yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's made me happier. Uh, to get back on track with this film, um, this might be a controversial statement, but I fucking hate Tom Waits. Ooh, that is like controversial. I'm I, I, I don't know what to say. He annoyed the absolute crap out of me for this whole film. He was just doing this little head bob. Do 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 oh so cool blah, blah, blah. it just annoyed the crap out of me for the whole film and like just act normal i guess i'm used to it because as he's gotten older he has that stoner persona now so like yeah. i'm just so used to that now uh, I, I, i've never really been too hot on his music and i'm also not hot on his acting it turns out either so <laughs> he's i love his music so much um He's uh yeah he's Tom Waits like that's he that's who he is love him or hate him and that's I, I think you hate choosing to hate him he's he's fully yeah. Tom Waits all the time he is not my he is not my cup of tea <laughs> he's the coolest guy in the room whether or not you whether or not you believe it he believes it he 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 comes across as someone who thinks he is the coolest guy in the room exactly yeah <laughs> yeah he doesn't care about the perception he, he in his mind he's the coolest guy in the room. Um, I, okay, I, there is one thing I wanted to say. So other than the fact that Tom, that we know now Adam, Adam hates Tom Waits in this movie, which is yeah. fair. Um, I, I want to see if y'all have any thoughts on Roberto Benigni's character. Okay, so, so Bob, right? Because um, as, I, as I saw this movie again, I felt like, you know, is it possible that, that Bob kind of represents 
Well, I was thinking about what does he represent because his storyline is uh, is larger than reality, right? Like things happen for him. He knows exactly what to do. He has these like instincts that are borderline supernatural, um, and he's the luckiest man alive. I mean, is it? Is there any spoilers in this movie? How, are we like? Um, I mean, the synopsis kind of spoils it, sort of. Like, yeah. I mean, beyond what happens to them, like if they're successful or not, I guess is the question. But I mean, I would say 90% of this is pretty much not a spoiler. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't get too specific. I mean, the way that his storyline plays out is suspends belief. Let me just say it that way. Right. You're, you're asked to suspend belief. Because uh, too, way too many coincidences kind of fall into place at the, at the same time. So then I was thinking a little bit about his role. And I'm wondering if, what do y'all think about the fact that this was based so much on a poem, if if Bob kind of is a proxy for the poet or the artist or the person who gets to dictate this story. Um, and if not, if, if that's a crazy idea, then who do you think he represents or what do you think his character is about? I think, I think he's just, the, I mean, to me, he's just the drive. Like you look at, how they ended up there they're people they're guys who were responsible in a sense i mean they were set up obviously but they're two guys who have to take some partial blame for their faults and really don't like they they just kind of leave it they're set up but they have no motivation to change or to do anything or to have any sort of drive and bob kind of brings that like you know he he's so he's difficult to communicate with, but he brings so much to them. And I mean, he's really the inciting incident in a sense for them, because otherwise they're just going to sit there and do nothing and yeah. kind of wallow in themselves. So, so he, he's the opposite of them in that he's very upfront about what he's done. He's very, he knows himself. He's very honest and he's sort of like, is an agent of change for them. Yeah, I mean, these are guys who seem kind of stuck in their life. You got one who's just happy enough, just kind of being a pimp, doing what he's doing. Um, no real change. And, of course, a big one with uh, the other is he's a DJ who can't find any stability in his life, and he can't take responsibility for that. And mm -hmm. they're just content with that. They're content to let things happen. Things are that they are as they are. And he's kind of the... To me, he's kind of against that. He's, you make your own destiny sort of idea. So, yeah. So they want this. Oh, go ahead, Adam, please. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, you know, obviously, like, like Zach was saying there, you know, they were on this path of just taking every day as it is. It is what it is. Whatever happens, happens. Let's just keep on trucking. Um, and then they're kind of forced out of that mindset then when they, when they end up in prison. And, you know, at the start, they're still happy enough, you know, just chatting shit in prison, just getting on with it. It is what it is. And then Bob is sort of the catalyst for them sort of galvanizing and making that change, obviously, you know, to, to try and escape from the prison. You know, no, no guys who are just happy rolling with the punches is going to try and escape from prison. It's way too much hassle. It's way too much effort and, you know, has big consequences. You know, these characters have shown before this that they're like, you know, they'll just sit there and just deal with whatever hand they're dealt with. 
So Bob kind of galvanizes them in a way to, to sort of, you know, make them grow that even if it's just a tiny bit, you know, he's, he's, he's pushed them to sort of grow and go out of their comfort zone. And instead of just taking everything as it is, they're going to try and actually do something. But did they, did they change though? Like everything that happened in that story that was good for them happened because of Bob. And then they wound up kind of falling into that same pattern, right? Like they can't even work together once they, like it's the way that the movie ends, like they kind of go off and like, I don't know, like, do, do you think that there's change there? I think there is because for the first time in either of their lives, while what they know is they don't want to be around one another, but they know where they want to go. Like this is the first time in their life, you know, at the beginning you look at, I'm going to get a mixed up, but I think it's Zach is the DJ. Um, for the first yeah. time in his life, he does have a direction. I mean, he knows he wants to go West and all Jack knows is he wants to go the other direction. And that's, for some that might be enough like at least there's they're not sitting still anymore i guess yeah like it would have been very easy for them to either stay at the prison or stay in the swamp or stay at the the house of the woman they meet it would have been very easy for them to just stay and just say no you know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna you know tom waits to be like mm, do, 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 i'm just gonna stay here man do, do, do. <laughs> you know that kind of way but they didn't you know they they, they pushed to sort of as Zach said, to, to, they chose a path. Like they literally, they, they literally choose a path, and and decide, okay, we're going to follow this path. Okay, and, and it does sort of mix in. It is what it is. Like they're choosing a path while also not, I guess, lying to themselves. Like they're choosing a path, and whatever's behind it is what it is. But they're still moving forward. It doesn't feel like they're just stuck in the mud as much. Yeah. So the the poem says. Um, uh, I took the two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one less traveled by and that's the one that made all the difference so I guess the poem ends on a note of well I don't know exactly what it means if you if you meant this as a diss track but um, but the way that that could potentially be interpreted is to say like that you know this is this is new for them both right they're going off but for both of them, they're going off on a road less traveled, and that's made all the difference in them for their in their lives. Yeah, because you know they've been they've been sort of living very much in a sense of just doing the same thing in a rush, as as we said before. And the theoretical road less traveled is them actually trying to do something different, to not be in the rush. So even by slightly changing a routine or you know slightly changing a behavior they are now suddenly going down the road less traveled because in before the start of the film, they would have just been like, meh, no. Now they are actually, you know, maybe, maybe if it's, even if it's only a small decision, it's still something different. It's a small behavioral change that may eventually lead to bigger, more prominent changes down the line. We don't know because the film ends. We don't see what happens with these characters. And, you know, that's kind of the point, I suppose. It's, like, like, like what we mentioned with, with La Atlante, we're, we're given the opportunity yeah. as the viewer to decide for ourselves what's going to happen. If we think they're just going to go back to their regular lives, if we think they're maybe going to try and make better men out of themselves, if they turn a corner and suddenly there's a big fucking alligator and he eats them, we get to decide that in our heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But I will say, unlike Lelante, 
they understand their relationship is toxic and they decide it's better to be without each other. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good it's point. True. That is true. This um and you know, I I think it's interesting what they're framed for as well, because it's things that could have happened to them even by happenstance if they weren't set up for it. I mean, you know, you have Jack who's going around trying to, you know, get women to work for him. The idea that one of them could accidentally be underage is a reality. Um, it is a true reality with that profession. And oh. with with Zach, it's the issue of where he is continually not pursuing his, I don't know if you want to call it dream, what he's good at. You, you don't really, you get kind of a different sense of why he's a DJ, um, whether it's just something he kind of fell into or not. But his lack of direction and him ending up in a bad situation because, I mean, let's, you know, hey, it's money. It's, it is what it is. Um, you know, that's very possible as well. I mean, they're very, very extreme examples of where they could end up, but they're possibilities regardless, which is probably why they're found guilty because it's not like, you know, it's unlikely that someone like either one of them would be in that situation. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking about the way this conversation is going. It's interesting. This is like got me thinking a little bit about the role of film because th this is like I, I'm not going to go too far crazy in this. I'm just like both of these movies just kind of you sit and have this experience with them, right? La Delante and, and Down by Law. Like you have this experience with them and there's meaning that is attached to these films that is it, it, it sort of sticks with you as the viewer like like you, you think about these movies after you see them, right? And there's probably moments where they, they come up in your life if you're thinking about, you know, for Down by Law, for example, if there's moments where you're stuck in a rut, you may start to associate with one character or another. Um, like there's, it's a, it's the type of experience where it's it kind of stays in your subconscious somehow, I think, or at least it does for me. Both these films stick around and it's different than the Marvel movies. And I think we're all fans of the Marvel franchise in general here for, I'm, I'm not, downing i'm not like uh down on them but those movies are made for a different purpose right those are more just to enjoy and sit back and relax and kind of let them do their thinking for you for the most part uh but th these films are different like this this adelante and down by law it's like it's a much more uh collaborative experience and you're supposed to really like kind of jump in and take part yeah like it's i'm just Sorry, Zach, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, poor Adam. I feel like he's getting the short end of the stick with how much people are bad-talking Marvel around him. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I like him. I like him. Yeah. It is what it is. Um, but uh, I'm sure I was trying to remember what my point was. Um, I lost it. Sorry. No, it's cool. I don't know if this helps. I was just saying, like, these are much more of like a collaborative experience. Like, you're meant to kind of join it with them and, uh, uh, you know, take part in this. It's like, a, you know, they, I don't know if that triggers anything for you. Yeah. So, suppose like if we again just use Marvel as the example. And again, I will. I'll be the first to admit I'm a MCU super fan. Um, as much as see people, especially in our Discord, originally were surprised by that. When, um, when, I, when I admitted to being a Marvel super fan, there were some people who thought I was quite the opposite. Um, no, I'm a huge Marvel fan. And what I like about those films is like exactly what you said, Chris. I don't have to think about them. I can just have fun and I can enjoy myself. Yeah. 
And some people don't like that, you know, that, that, you know, I can like those, like there was, there was a statement made that I refrained from commenting on in our, in our, in our discord that said that, you know, it was something about people who say that, oh, you're not supposed to think about like It's okay to like Marvel movies just for the fun of them. But then, you know, but those kind of people probably don't like more intellectual films because they just look at film as something to be fun and what's the fun in that. It was something to that effect. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have it open in front of me. And I, I completely disagree. It's absolutely okay to have films that you want to watch just because they're fun versus having films you want to watch because they are intellectually stimulating. Right. It's the exact same reason why people will read a Dostoevsky book and then maybe go read a comic book or right. they'll watch some documentary about a hard hitting issue and then go watch Rick and Morty. You know, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the exact same thing. So the reason why I love Marvel films is because they, first off, they are extremely entertaining films. They are action packed. There is no downtime like in a certain Dennis Villanueva film that's come out recently. There is no downtime. <laughs> um, there, a, lot, a lot happens in those films. They're extremely en- engaging films. They, they want to engage with you directly, even if it's not a, intellectually engaging with you. It could just be something as simple as a visual stimulus, you know, a lot of sort of crazy effects and things like that. And that's absolutely fine. The films don't need to be these amazing nuanced stories with lots of thematic weight because comic books weren't like that. You know, they had fucking people get bitten by radioactive spiders and go climbing walls and fighting goblins. You know, they're not made to be like that. Whereas something like Down by Law or La Atlante or art films in general, they are there to, to stimulate you intellectually, emotionally. And that's, that's also absolutely fine. I feel like there's too much, there's too much of a divide between, you know, the ideas of only liking films for entertainment and only liking films for art. They are they, the same person can do both. And yep. that's absolutely fine. And the idea that that can't be the case is rampant. And I, I hate it because, and I don't want me to sound like I'm just sort of, you know, you know what you know that i'm sort of being being sort of uh what's the word i'm taking this too personally but when i hear people say oh you know you like marvel movies but then you watch art movies you mustn't actually really like the art movies you're only kind of watching them to make you know to be a bit pretentious or whatever or on the opposite front to say oh you like art movies but you're watching these marvel ones you're probably just doing that ironically no that's not the case you can do both and and you know you do it for different reasons. There's some evenings where you just want to turn your brain off. And that's when you have your, your, uh, your, you know, your cup of tea movies where you just get to chill out, turn off your brain, enjoy Captain America kicking the shit out of people for two hours or (laughs) even with other kinds of films. Like my, one of my comfort films is scream. Like scream is a great movie in terms of like, you know, it's, it's a really well-made film, but it's also really easy and it's really entertaining. And, you know, that's, um, you know, because I completely agree with you, Adam, 100%. Because one of the things I find frustrating is, you know, being into genre films, you know, those get those have always been looked down upon in some degree. But the funny thing is most people's favorite films, if you take somebody's top 10, more than likely they're going to have a genre film. But they've aged and people still like them. 
you know, in the fifties, in the sixties, you know, you wouldn't have Don Siegel in your top 10. And, you know, if you want to look like a serious art person, but that's not unusual now. Um, it doesn't matter if it's that or, um, Don Carpenter or anyone else. Um, and the idea that, you know, we can go ahead and dictate, well, these are lesser films. It's like, well, they may not, it may be a different case in 10 or 20 years than they yeah. are now. And, and just to make a point here, I'm also not shitting on people who don't like, you know, comic book movies, you know, that's absolutely fine. It's all down to personal taste. What you find entertaining. It's a, like any art film is a completely subjective form, you know, some people, like I'm saying that I like to watch Marvel movies because they're entertaining. Some people aren't entertained by explosions and CGI and, you know, maybe sort of iffy plots and stuff. Some people aren't entertained by that. So if your top 10 is all fucking Lars von Trier films, you know, power to you, that's fine as well. You're, you're entertained by by nihilism and sadness. And that's fine. Whatever. You, you do you. <laughs> But I think what y'all are saying is something that I I always stand on the soapbox here as well of saying like, there's room. Uh, I love the quote from um, oh shoot who was it? Um, darn, one of our interviews recently. I feel bad that I forgot who said this, but I love this quote. Cinema is a broad church with room for all. Yeah, for sure. So and like I just like that mentality. Like I just I think that that's the right stance to take. Like there are some Marvel movies that are just going to hit well for people. And there's some that aren't. And some people are mad that what they're doing to the studio system. I don't even know what that means. I'm not in the studio system. Um, I just know that they're employing a lot of people and it seems like it's doing a lot of good for a lot of people. So I'm, I'm generally okay with that. But there's some people that say it's killing creativity in Hollywood and these kinds of things, right? Whatever. I find that point. Yeah. I, I find that thought process hilarious because they Marvel specifically are giving jobs to young up and coming directors, gives them a ton of money to say, look, we're following a formula here. You can put your own little spin on it. Here's a ton of money. That director now has the financial freedom to go make whatever the heck they want. I mean, that's what did, right? I mean, I mean, as an actor, I mean, people might fund him for years for Twilight, but now he got to make independent he, films for forever. Exactly. It's, it, is <laughs> the smart, it is the smartest thing in, in, all of, in all of Hollywood and all of the film business. It is the absolute smartest thing. If you want to be able to make the films or the, whatever you want to make, just take a paycheck. I know I would do it. I, I do it right now. You know, I, oh, I, yeah. you know, watching films, podcasting, talking about movies, that's my passion. Working in tech support for a major um manufacturer that is not my passion i don't get anything from that but they pay my bills to allow me to then do the things i do want to do so i yep. find it funny that people who do like 99 percent of people on earth do their job to allow them to do the things they want to do in their spare time but that's certainly not okay if you're in the film business oh you took money from marvel you're a sellout so are you <laughs> unless Everyone's you work for your yeah unless you work for yourself which if you do and like you're you're part of a very small percentage of the world if you get to work for yourself doing the thing you love kudos to you if you want to call someone a sellout then that's fine but if you you know work in a in a coffee shop or if you're like me and you work in tech support and you just do obviously your hobbies on the side then you're doing the exact same thing so why are you shitting on these other people for doing it well, starting with Guardians of the Galaxy, they took directors that would otherwise not have a name in Hollywood. And it's just been 
one after the other, right? I mean, Taika Waititi was doing great work, but like he was not a household name, right? Chloe Zhao was doing interesting things, but she was not a household name. Like, name, the friend, the, uh, name yeah. any director that's done a Marvel film that has that was a big name before they did a Marvel film. There's only two answers, and they're both from the first few years of Marvel. They're saying John, John Favreau would be the only, yeah. Yeah, John Favreau, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, and they're all from phase yeah. one. After that, it's all people who, oh, sorry, Shane Black as well. That's like the last one. And, and he was more known as like a fucking writer. Anyway. A writer, exactly, yeah, than a right. director. Like after that, you have people whose career launched because of it. So you look at the, the Russo brothers, whose only real credit before Marvel was a few episodes of Community. And that's how they got their gig in Marvel, because they did a few episodes of Community. James Gunn, as you just mentioned. Scott Derrickson, who did Sinister and obviously launched from there. John Watts, Taika Waititi, Ryan Coogler, Peyton Reed. Like they were, they're obviously talented filmmakers, but they weren't huge names. Like even like you look at the most recent list of films, the Marvel films that are coming out in the next two years. The only name who was big before Marvel is Sam Raimi. That's the yeah, only and- one. Everyone else is just continuing on from working for Marvel. And now they're, they're going to get the chance to make their own stuff. Do we, do we think that Jojo Rabbit would have gotten made? If, exactly. Type, no, if if Thor not, three no. never if Thor three didn't happen, no, of course not. And no, I've never seen Jojo Rabbit, but I know it's very highly regarded. I don't think you highly regarded Chris, but I know everyone else is. I'm, it, I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. No, so, no, I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but um. Yeah. Well, it's like Adam. I know you're a huge Hitchcock fan. How often did Hitchcock go make a studio film and then go and make something on his own? I mean. They did, I mean, you know, obviously there were studio directors, but I mean, you look at that through the, that was pretty normal in the 60s Psycho and 70s, is the best. 80s. Psycho is the best example of this, right? Because, yeah. you know, he made all, like, he worked with, you know, studios and stuff all through the 50s. He wanted to make Psycho. Studio said, we're not going to give you a lot of money for this. He said, that's fine. I just want to make this film. He shot it in black and white on purpose. It was cheaper. He used his crew from the TV show Alfred Hitchcock Presents because it was cheaper to hire them than it was to hire a film crew. He was just wanting to make this movie and he was able to do that because of, you know, the fact that he'd worked with the studios before he could afford to do it because of the stuff he did beforehand. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that, that's the, you know, I'm, I know there's plenty of Hitchcock movies you don't like. I think we talked about one recently, but you know, yeah. I'd make some shitty movies that it meant I got to make what I wanted. For sure. Yeah. Fritz Long made Clash by Night, right? I can't imagine that was a passion project for him. Yeah. That's not a good movie. Um, but yeah, no, I think that this is the whole thing, right? So uh, this is kind of getting back to my point a little bit about Adelante earlier. There's, I think that some people, I, I don't know exactly what this is, but some people have inside of them this, I'm just going to call it an artistic spirit, right? And there's some, there, there's a narrative around that, that if you're the artistic type and you're a creative type, that sacrificing any of your ideas for the purpose of, of, of commercial reasons is selling out, right? And you see it in, it's it's really prevalent in punk rock where you, you have to be punk, you, you have to fit into a certain kind of thing of like to be punk, right? It's it's relevant, I think you, you I, I think it that Vigo was struggling with it a little bit, not Alonso, if my theory has any merit. And like, I think it's a flawed narrative. I don't like that narrative. I think we're all saying the same thing in a variety of ways. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong if you have this strong creative pull to go work for somebody, take care of your family, make money, like get in a financially secure position. 
to allow freedom to go do the things you want. I don't think the narrative around the starving it, artist yeah. has proven how we to get, be... It's, that's how we get great stuff. It's, it's exactly how... We, Psycho wouldn't exist, like Adam said. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a sad war, a world for horror if Psycho doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. So, in conclusion, Down by Law is a cool film. Yeah, absolutely. That's what that whole point was. <laughs> yeah, and like even me as someone who didn't love the film, I definitely see it's. I I, I see why people like it. It's a cool like this film. I I'd say Tarantino probably loves this film. You know, it's a it's a cool little film, and that's fine. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's incredibly right. simple, and I guess that's that that is what its attraction is. It has a very universal message and told in a very straightforward and simple way. Yeah, with a little bit of an artistic flair, you know, the Robert Frost the and everything else. Yeah, look, art films don't always have to be so up your ass, you know. Sometimes it's just about telling a, a simple story in a in a cool way. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care. Bye.